Hi, everybody. My name's Penny. I'm a member of Al-Anon. My home group is the Right Choice Group. We meet on Tuesday nights in Huntley, Montana at 8 o'clock at the only church in Huntley, and you're all welcome to come. (laughs) Someday, if all of those people that I welcome to our group show up, we're going to have a really big meeting. Um, I'm going to tell you my story the way I remember it. The reason I say it like that is because there are a lot of parts of my story that um, along the way I discovered later that I made it up. And the reason I did that was because it just was more exciting than what was really going on. And so sometimes when I get up here, I realize, I think, that wasn't true. I made that up. And that's one of the things that Al-Anon has helped me with is to be able to see that and be okay with that and be honest with myself and the people around me. Um, I can relate to our speaker last night. I feel uh, grateful that I made it up here without tripping. And um, I'm still standing here. I haven't passed out and I haven't thrown up. So um, in any case, I'm going to get rid of that. Otherwise, I'll be playing with it all night. Um, I was born in 1960 in Denver, Colorado. And at the time, I had thought I was an only child. Um, I, I basically thought I came from a pretty average family. Um, it wasn't until later that I discovered that my dad, my, when my dad drank, he, there were problems in the family. And I can't to this day say that my dad was an alcoholic, but like I said, when he drank, there were problems. Uh, there was another disease that we dealt with in the family, and that was diabetes. And my mom had diabetes really bad to the point where she spent um, a lot of time in the hospital, and so I was real familiar with hospitals and um, hospital environment, that kind of thing. And, and like many of you have talked about before, I had always thought that my mom was the bad guy. And I thought that if my mom treated my dad better, then maybe my dad wouldn't drink. Um, I, I remember there was a lot of fear when I was growing up. My dad was a yeller. He um, yelled and he swore a lot. And so there were a lot of times where I spent um, many hours at night in the middle of the kitchen on a chair much like these chairs are here, except they didn't have a soft cushion on them, and um, listen to him yell at me for something that I did or didn't do. And... Um, I thought that that was pretty normal. I thought everybody did that. And it wasn't until I came to Al-Anon that I discovered that really that wasn't very normal. Um, Growing up, there were times when I wanted to have friends over to the house, but I I knew that there was something wrong, and so I didn't really want to have my friends come over. Really, I never had any close relationships when I was growing up until um, high school years. My dad, now that I uh, reflect back on it, he did, he tried a lot of geographical cures. Um, I counted at one time, and while we were living in Denver, between, um, until I was about 11, 10, 11, 12, something like that, we moved 13 times. And there was, Carrie talked about this last night, there was one time when, I don't remember if I had to stay after school, I, I did get in trouble and would have to stay after school a lot for talking and or chewing gum which I still do today, I talk quite a bit. See, and I think that when I come to the podium, in reality, I being an Al-Anon member really should be in my element because I have everybody's attention and you're gonna listen to me for a little bit. 
So, but you know, the nerves are still there. I, I had told Bob before um, I came, before we came down here, well, it was kind of like up, down, came into this room anyway, that um, I had butterflies, but the butterflies went away because the birds came in to eat them. <laughs> and the birds were still flying. So in any case, um, it, it, I just think that it's okay. And the other thing that I try to do too is I try and say a prayer before I come up here and just hope that God will put those words on my tongue and I'll get them spit out somehow. And it's the times when I stop and try and think about what I need to say that I get into trouble. In any case, while I was growing up, there was one time where I got into trouble and I had to stay after school. And so I was late and I didn't go to the babysitter's house. I walked home and um, was sitting on the step and had looked in the house to try and get in and there wasn't any furniture. And my family had moved and I thought that they moved without me. Well, it, it was like a couple hours later that they did come back, but they figured that I would be at the babysitter's house. And for me, I kind of felt like um, life was kind of like that, that I, I, I just didn't, you know, like a lot of alcoholics talk about, I felt like I didn't fit in. And, you know, I wanted to have friends and I wanted people to like me and I would do whatever it took to have people to like me. Although when I was younger, I didn't have um, a lot of knowledge to be able to know, you know, exactly what that meant. But I did know that if, if you had something exciting to say, then people usually listen to you. And I think that's where the lying came in. Um, when I was about 11 or 12, uh, we moved to Nebraska. And my family is from Nebraska. And um, so most of my cousins and stuff were there, which, by the way, um, most of my cousins in my family are male, and so I felt real comfortable growing up with um, around men and with men and um, talking with men and really didn't care too much for women. Um, never had very many girlfriends. However, when I did get into high school, I did have one girlfriend that um, I really relied upon, and uh, we shared a lot of things. We had a lot of things in common. Um, I spent some time at her house. She had several brothers and sisters. Spent some time at her house, and we got to be really good friends. I started telling her some things that I wouldn't tell anybody else. And some of the things that I started to tell her were the truth. And um, I felt real close to her. When I was about 14 or 15 years old, um, there were, well, there was a lot of things going on then. Um, I was going out with a guy that uh, my family didn't want me to go out with. And so several strange incidences happened. One of them, which, you know, to me were exciting things because they were different. And one of them was that <clears throat> I had the sheriff's office showed up at school one day and wanted to take me home. And he said, you know, if you don't come with me right now, which I only lived down the block, and so I was willing to walk. And he said, no, you're not going to do that. If you don't come with me now, then I'm going to cuff you. Well, I was good, and I did go with him. And I walked into the house, and here's like five of my cousins, male cousins that are older than me, and my folks, and they had gotten an anonymous phone call that had said that I wasn't in school and hadn't been in school, and which I was in school. And um, they were concerned about me, and my cousins had told me that they didn't want me going out with this guy, and hanging around with him, and if I continued to do that, then they were going to kill him. And um, so I kind of took heed in that. I think what had happened really more than anything else was that 
Um, he had quit going to school, and of course I wasn't going to hang out with some loser, so I quit hanging out with him. And shortly after that, he attempted to commit suicide in front of me. And so all of these little incidences are just like these little exciting things that lead up. Um, it was about that time that my mom sat me down at the kitchen table, and she told me, she said, I have something that I need to tell you about. And I said, okay. And she said, I need to tell you that I'm not your mother. Well, you know, being the snotty little teenager that I was, I said, well, I knew that. And um, she said, well, do you know who your mother is? And, well, you know, I didn't know that. And I had no idea, you know, that I had no idea who my mother was. And so she told me that my real mother was who I had always thought was my half-sister. And essentially what had happened was, well, then my next question after a long pause, well, who's my dad? And she said, well, your dad is your dad. So essentially what happened was, just to make a long story short and to attempt to not make this too confusing, who I thought was my mother married my dad. She had had a previous marriage and had a daughter from that marriage, and essentially my dad had raped his stepdaughter. And so I was the product of that and was raised with um, her mom thinking that that was my mother. For a long time, I had a really difficult time dealing with that. I just basically shut it out. I didn't tell... There were like two people that I told about it. I didn't tell very many people about it, although I did think it was something exciting. It was something, it was like a secret. It was a big secret, and that was a secret that I was going to keep. I didn't really deal with that until I came to Al-Anon, and it's because of Al-Anon that I've been able to develop a really good relationship with my real mom. And it's because of Al-Anon that I'm able to stand up here and say, the person that raised me was my mom. I mean, that was the person that I knew as my mother. I didn't know anybody else until that point. And so at first it used to be really kind of awkward to explain. And the more I talk about it, and I guess if you have things like that in your past, you know, they seem like these big demons inside. But if you start talking about them, then they're not so big. Um, in any case, uh, she had told me, the reason that she had told me that was because she was afraid that what had happened to my real mom was going to happen to me because at the time um, my mom was going out with a guy that my dad didn't want her going out with and um, that was when the uh, rape had occurred. I don't know all of the details about it um, and I really don't need to know all those details. Um, all I know is that it's something that occurred and I'm here and I'm really grateful to be here. Um, after that Basically, like I said, my dad still drank. Um, there was still a lot of fear. There were times where I still got yelled at. I got, um, my, like I said, my dad, my dad was kind of a verbal abuser. He would yell. Uh, for a long time, I think that, you know, I think being raised in a situation like that where you have somebody that speaks really loud and I don't think my dad was hard of hearing. I think that was just he felt like one of those deals where if, if I say it louder, then you'll hear me. And um, I used to think that too. And when I came to Al-Anon, I discovered that I don't need to say it any louder because you heard me the first time. It's probably just that maybe you don't agree with me, and that's okay now. Um, <clears throat> when... Just before I graduated from high school, something else I should tell you that I also thought was normal, that's why, you know, sometimes things seem so normal that you kind of forget about them, was that 
My parents didn't sleep in the same bed. As a matter of fact, they slept in different rooms. I, I would see them argue a lot, but I never saw them make up. And so I really didn't know how to do that deal. I mean, it's not like you go to school and you get like a book of instructions that tells you how to get along with others. I mean, that's something that you just kind of learn. A lot of things that I learned about life, you know, I'm sure I learned moral values and stuff like that, but a lot of the things that I learned were right in school and what you would consider right on the street. Um, right before I graduated, my mom died. It was um, the, the mom that I had that raised me. She, like I said, she had diabetes really bad. There were, and I would never wish this on anybody, um, there were times when she was growing up, or when I was growing up, that she would get diabetic ulcers on her legs, and I would have to help treat those. Oh, I hated that, and I hated her for that. And when she died, um, because now I have come to terms with this, because she wasn't really around a lot towards the latter part of her life. Um, it was mostly my dad and I that I, you know, I, I didn't really, I mean, of course I was remorseful, but I didn't, it wasn't like a big deal to me. It was like one of those things, you know, it was like another thing that happened that was exciting in my life. Um, shortly after that, after I graduated from high school, I had plans to go to college. I had gotten a full tuition scholarship um, on an art scholarship to a two-year college in McCook, Nebraska, and um, had planned to go to college. <clears throat> and right after I graduated from high school, four friends of mine that I graduated with, one of them being my best friend, were killed in a car accident. And, you know, I wasn't raised a religious, in a religious setting. Um, I can't say I wasn't raised in a religious um, family because... My family was kind of like, um, how would you say this? They, they treated Methodists, we were Methodists, and it was kind of like how Catholics are. I mean, they were like, um, yeah, okay, yeah, you got it, all right. Um, my dad... We used to live next to a Catholic church. You know, I won't say some of the things that my dad used to call different people, but he would have little names for people. And I could never understand how come when I went to school or went to Sunday school, I did go to Sunday school, but when I went to church that all the Methodists, I mean, they would like dress up in the garb. And the Catholics next door went to church like in just regular clothes. And I asked my dad that one time, and my dad said that he felt that he didn't have to go to church to prove that he believed in God. So I did, I did believe that. That was one thing that I took with me. But as far as being a real religious family, we weren't a real religious family. I was never told that I had to go to church. I was never, you know, instructed on the Bible or anything like that. But I had some kind of a belief. But the day that Janine died, the day Janine was killed, that was my best friend. It was like... I was pissed at God. You know, how could a God take away my best friend? You know, the person that, that I related everything to. I mean, I told this person everything, and now she was gone. I wouldn't be able to um, talk that over with anyone. And really, um, besides, you know, all of you being my family and closest friends, next to all of you, Janine was my closest friend. The ironic part of that is, is here not too long ago, Bob and I, we spoke in Nebraska. This was a cool deal. I mean, this, this was the God deal in it. 
is, I mean, years and years later, after I graduated from high school, I spoke in um, Lincoln, no, never mind, it doesn't matter where we were at, we were in Nebraska, and um, I was speaking, and afterwards, there was a gentleman that came over to me, and he knew Janine's family, and he said that Janine's dad was in the program. And so I thought, that's why Janine and I, we had something in common, and we didn't even know it. And so, you know, I thought back on, I thought about that, and I thought that was the answer, you know, that was like the little frosting on the cake for me, you know, that God put there for me. So that was really a neat deal. Um, it's funny how you find that stuff out later, you know, that lo and behold, you know, like your neighbor or somebody next door, and you end up in the program with them. Well, we, you know, kind of are like magnets. We all attract one another. That's how it goes. <clears throat> anyway, so after Janine was killed, um, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I thought, you know, I, I need to, like, get out of this small town, and I need to go do something for myself. And so I headed off to college. And um, now, mind you, I was like this little naive person, didn't really do any partying in school, you know, hung out with some people. I was never athletic. I kind of did my art stuff, um, was never with one of the, you know, like the jocks, the freaks, nothing like that, wasn't a cheerleader. Um, as a matter of fact, when I went home for my uh, high school reunion, there was one guy in class, I mean, I graduated with maybe like 50 people, and that was like a huge class, but one of them didn't even remember me. So, you know, at wanting to make my mark on society, I really didn't make a very big mark, and I didn't even think about that until right now. That's, you know, I just wasn't wasn't anything spectacular. Um, went off to college and um, um, basically while I was in college I had decided that I was going to go be somebody. And um, I, you know, the small town that I was at, people were getting married, they were, you know, pregnant, having babies, having an affair, and it was like I wasn't going to do that. I was going to go be somebody. So, in my search for wanting to be somebody, and you know, I, I sought after that forever, to want to be somebody. You know, I don't know if that meant like having my picture on the cover of Time Life magazine or exactly what that was, but it was like I was in search of that. And I think really what I was in search for was an alky, because it was just like I was prepped and trained for that. So, I moved to Billings, Montana. Um, the reason I guess I headed north, just to be honest, is because that's where my mom was. And... What I did before I left was I, you know, put in, turned in resumes to all of the hotels, motels, banks, um, just about everything I could. And when I left, I had to, um, I was put up a grade in the second grade. And so when I left, even though I'd been through a year of college, I had to go under custody. Because if I would have been picked up in the state of, actually, I think it was uh, Wyoming. If I would have been picked up in Wyoming, I would have been considered a runaway and would have been turned in. So I came up to Billings, Montana, and uh, worked at a hotel for a week, and then I got on with the telephone company. And um, still, you know, being pretty naive and not really knowing a lot about life in general, I, you know, just wanted to help people out. And um, along the way, uh, there was a guy that I ran into, and of course, you know, I would run around with exciting people. Um, and of course, you know, like many of you know, the Alkies are the exciting ones. Um, there were a lot of guys that I dated, and there was one guy that, I mean, they were all pretty exciting. There was one guy that I dated that um, didn't drink, didn't do drugs, and I dumped him like a hot potato. Um, very boring, very boring. 
Um, but there was one guy, you know, that I ran into, and um, he was, you know, he was having some problems. He was on parole for uh, murder, and he couldn't have um, guns in his house, and he couldn't have drugs in his house. So, you know, I just wanted to help him out. And so, I mean, well, don't we, you know? So I, and this was normal to me. This, you know, I was just helping someone out. So, you know, by wanting to help a lot of people out, I would end up with a lot of people's drugs at my house. And, you know, we'd do the little square things where you'd make like the little diaper and you'd put, you know, the powder and stuff in it. And we'd do all those things. And, and we'd have like little parties at the house. Now, you know, I never did relate that when you had like the drug or when you had the party, you know, and you were having um, the booze and nobody needed to bring it, that I was really popular. And I didn't relate that you were popular because you had the drug or you had the booze. I, di I didn't get that connection at all. Um, I, there have been some guys that I have dated that have end up in, ended up in this program. Um, which, you know, doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I've said, you know, you could line up a hundred guys against this wall and I could pick out the Alkies. I mean, I'm just attracted to them, them immediately. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and, and I still am today. I, I, I feel like, you know, it's, I can search you out. I can find you. And so I need Al-Anon really bad. <laughs> My brain, when... I have a regular home group. My home group meets on Tuesday night, like I told you. I have an online meeting that I go to on Friday nights. And being delegate, I have been um, extremely busy going you know, here, there, and everywhere, giving my report and stuff. I'll be glad when it kind of slow down, slows down a little bit because I have a Thursday night meeting that I'd like to get back to. But if I don't go to a meeting for a week, my brain starts to think again, you know, how great it would be, you know, what a great widow I would make. <laughs> or... You know, that we talked about the swamp the other day because when Bob and I first moved into our home, we, you know, we're kind of checking out the land and we walked out to this one area and there's like a swamp out there. And I said, you know, I'm looking there. My, I mean, my head is just clicking, you know. And I looked over at him and I kind of smiled and I said, wow, this would be, you know, like a great, great place to dump somebody. And, and I, I think he said something like, yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> So I tell all my friends, if I come up missing, have them come drag, come drag the swamp. <clears throat> so, you know, I start to, like, do plans, like stupid plans. And I start thinking about really, you know, anything you say to me just sets me off. And I, I start to become a person that I don't like anymore. Um, I, you know, went on and I did the little dating thing. There was, you know, and... I didn't really know, I thought, you know, the first thing you should probably do when, when you get out there in the world is you should probably find a partner. And, you know, they didn't give me a class in school where you, you know, how to find a partner. And when I was growing up, my dad used to take me to bars and to liquor stores. You know, I was always the little girl that he'd show off and everything. And so that was really all I knew. And, you know, I didn't figure anybody was really hanging out at the liquor stores. So I went to look for a partner in the bars. And um, there was one night where I was out with this one guy and walked into this bar and turned around. There was like a little commotion back over here. And I turned around. And the first thing I noticed on this guy was his mustache. And I just said, oh, my God, I love your mustache. 
and um, asked him if he wanted to dance. And I'll probably mess this story up. I haven't told this for a while. Um, oh, the guy that I was with got a little bit miffed, and so he asked me to dance. Um, he asked me to dance. And I told the guy with the mustache, I said, I'll be right back. And he said, yeah, yeah. And so I went out and I danced and I come back and he's gone. <clears throat> well, you know, we're persistent people. And so I went into that bar for a week solid. And I asked all the barmaids and the bartenders, you know, I was looking for this guy named Bob and he was a fireman and he had a big mustache. And, you know, those people are tight. They don't tell about one another. You know, those bartenders and barmaids with their clientele. And so, finally I got one to cough up the name. And I looked up the name in the phone book, and there was two of them in the phone book, so I picked one of them, and a woman answered the phone. Now, you know, I've heard alcoholics talk about this before, where, like, their morals start to slide away. And I was never going to go out with a married man, never going to do that. But, you know... I was going to marry this man. <laughs> didn't know his last name, but I was going to marry him. And I didn't care, you know, if he's married or not. And so I said, is Bob there? And she said, no. And I said, well, when will he be back? And I think she said, like, around 11 o'clock. And so I said, okay, thank you. I'll call back. And then I sat, and, you know, what we do, we watch the clock. And I waited. And when 11 o'clock came around, um, I called back, and he was there. And I, you know, said, do you remember me? And yes, he did. And and so he came down to the bar, and, and I basically said, you know, your place or mine, and he said yours, and I said, okay. And, you know, I'd like to think after that that we dated, but <clears throat> I, today I would probably be arrested for what I did. I think they call it stalking. <laughs> and seriously, that's what I did. I mean, it, it felt like dating. You know, I mean, they didn't teach me, you know, what that meant either in school, so I just was kind of winging it. Um, <clears throat> anyway, we, we did the dance for a long time. Um, and it got to the point where, you know, I should tell you this. He was never going to be unfaithful to me. I wasn't married to him, but he wasn't going to be unfaithful to me. But, you know, I was still going out with lots of guys and hanging out with lots of people. And, um, oh, well, there went that fleeting moment. Um, yeah, that's what I get for thinking. In any case, he wasn't going to be unfaithful to me, but I still went out with all of these other guys. And what I would do is, much like the alcoholic talks about, I would get up in the morning, I'd look in the mirror, and I would say, I'm not going to go find him today. If he wants to be with me, he can call me. He can be with me, you know. And throughout the day, I would think of why I needed to talk with him. You know, I think, um, for me anyway, I think I would, like, subconsciously leave something at his house. Um, earrings or shoes or clothes or something like that. Or something would happen where I needed to talk to him. And so all day long, I was thinking of this plan. And then... At night, I would go look for him. And he had a really unique vehicle. It was like um, a mustard yellow uh, crew cab. It had uh, personalized license plates. And so I would go looking for this vehicle. You know, I said after I came into Al-Anon that 
there were like other people, and I've heard um, other Al-Anon members talking about going to look for the alcoholic, and I always said that we could probably carpool and have saved some money, <laughs> because I'm sure there were others doing the same thing as me. Anyway, so this kind of became a routine. You know, I would all day, you know, look it up in the morning, and I'd say, I'm not going to go look for him today all day long. I'd think about why I needed to be with him. And then I would go look for him. And then when I found him, then that was like another little game that we played. And, and sometimes I would even park right next to his vehicle, and I would go in, and, and then I would wait for the moment. Now, growing up, I would know the moment. You know, there came a little space and time, and it was real narrow, mind you, a little space and time where you could... Um, you know, it was kind of like before this little space and time, you didn't want to be near the alcoholic, um, the drinker anyway. I had no idea he was an alcoholic, the person that was drinking, because you really couldn't get your way with things. And if you didn't get in that little space and time, if it slipped beyond that, then there was like no hope. And so I would always try and get in that little space and time, and then I would go over and I would say, oh, God, I didn't know you were here. And, you know, and then we play another game, and um, just would do that over and over, and it got to a point where the only way I can describe it is like a wagon wheel. Um, my life was like a wagon wheel. The hub of that wheel was the alcoholic, and the spokes of that wheel, everything that went out from that um, was about the alcoholic, from the clothes that I wore, the vehicle that I drove, the people that I ran around with, everything that I did was about the alcoholic. And I had no idea that I had lost myself in this other person. Um, <clears throat> I've never told this story, but I told this to somebody the other day. I've never told it from the podium. Actually, she's the first person that I've told. When, let me just tell you something right now. If you're doing your fourth and fifth step and you have that little thing that you, sh you think that you, you can't tell anybody, and what's like the worst thing ever, that's what I did when I first came in Al-Anon. Um, I had this, these two things that there was no way that I could tell my sponsor, you know, it was horrible. Trust me, it's not horrible. Anyway, I couldn't tell my sponsor these two things, and they, like, haunted me. It was like a tape would play in my head, and it would go over and over and over and over until I finally related th those two stories to someone else who had the same, you know, experience as me. Kind of blew my bubble, because I always thought I was different when I came in here. In any case, um, I had one of those played in my head, and it wasn't until recently that I told someone else's story, and she said, God, you have got to tell that. So I'm going to tell you this. This was right towards the end, um, but this kind of portrays what was happening with my life. Um, it was one of those nights where I went looking for the alcoholic, and um, he was in a bar. He was there for a short period of time, and this was, you know, before that little that little interval in there and he left and so I didn't get to talk with him before that little interval and I was with another gal who was a friend of mine and of course I didn't want to lead on that I needed to be with him and so you know I started thinking of excuses why I needed to go find him because he had left and I don't know what I thought up anyway we headed out and I, I had a dots in there then it was um, little dots and hatchback as a matter of fact when I got stuck I could push myself out and it was snowing really, really bad. I mean, hardly anybody was out. And I pulled over to his house, and his truck was in the driveway. All the lights were on, music blaring. And I went over to his bedroom window, and I kicked on the window because it was in the basement. And no response. And so I get down on my knees, and I look down there, and I can see that there's no one in there. And so I swear, I just made like a little trail around this house trying to figure out how to get in. All the doors were locked, you know, and the music's blaring, ringing the doorbell, nobody's answering, but I know he's there. 
And so, you know, I'm trying to be really cool around my friend and not lead on that it's like, you know, my life is inside and I need in now. And so I looked in the window. There was like, you know, where the curtain is closed, there was like about this much of a gap there. And I go peering in this window and I see this purse. That was like a bad deal. You know, he was cheating on me. (laughs) We're not even married and he's cheating on me. But see, what I was doing was different. You know, I didn't think about, you know, what I was doing, all the guys I was hanging out with and sleeping with and everything else. That was different. And, you know, it's like you can kind of start to feel some of these things like slip away. And I go over and I grab Kathy. And Kathy used to stand about right here to me. So there was no way that she could see in that window. So I like hike her up on my shoulders. And she can't see the purse. Well, I had this purse memorized. I mean, burned into my brain. And there was time after that that I went looking for that purse. I mean, I would go into the bar and I would look on the bottom where the women would put their purses. And I, you know, I probably would have killed somebody. Some innocent person who had some purse that was the same thing. In any case, you know, I could feel some of that slip away when you don't want somebody else to know kind of what's going on in your life. And so, you know, I'm cool. That's fine. You know, I don't need him. He can, you know, go straight to and whatever else I said. So I took Kathy home and um, I went to my house and I started calling. And it rings and it rings and it rings and it rings. You know, like five rings doesn't do it. You know, we have this magical number, like probably a hundred. Um, no answer. And so I hang up the phone and I start, you know, again. And, and then I hang up the phone and then it's busy. Okay, took it off the hook. So, you know, it's like a blizzard outside. Now, probably the Al-Anon members will know this answer. So what do I do? Right on. Get dressed. I got dressed, and I headed back over there again. Did another little trail. All the lights are off this time. The music's off. And this time I could hear him in the back room. I could hear him talking to some other woman. And, um, I mean, I was devastated from this. But this did give me another reason why I would need to talk with him. And so I went home, and I knew that he would have to be at work at 7 o'clock in the morning, so I set my alarm clock. That kind of tells you, I mean, that was my story, the thing that was like, so, you know, God, I can't tell her, you know, it's like the worst thing ever. (laughs) Anyway, um, I set my alarm clock, and when the alarm clock went off in the morning, you know, we kind of sleep in a half a day, for some reason, I guess I thought he would call me or something. Um, I called him at work, and I asked him if he was with another woman. Oh, no, he wasn't. And so, you know, everything's fine. I, you know, I think everything's fine. And then, I don't know if it was the next day or a couple days later when he called me and he needed to talk to me. Well, you know, that was, he needs me. So, of course, I'm going to go over there right now. I mean, I don't know if I was at, if I was at work, I'm sure I left. Um, there were a lot of times, I mean, I still have to thank my higher power today for even being able to keep my job. Let's see, I went through, I don't know how many family members died um, just to be with this man. Um, you know, I, I would call in sick for work. I'd call in sick for him for work. Um, you know, I thought, like, I couldn't drink with him or his friends. I couldn't keep up. And so I thought if I was the driver. So I became the driver and became the cooler packer and, you know, whatever else they wanted done or needed done. And so anyway, I went over to his house. And he told me that he was with another woman, and that was it. He wasn't. He didn't want to see me anymore. 
Well, you know, like I said, he was like the hub of my life. And so that's just like jerking the insides out of me. And so my first instinct was to kill myself. So I grabbed, I don't know, I probably grabbed a razor, who knows. Grabbed a razor, was going to go to the bathroom and kill myself. Well, you know, he's such a sympathetic person. Um, He went over and he, you know, picked the lock and he said, well, if you're going to kill yourself, you're not doing it at my house. (laughs) Well, it was, you know, a little time after that, I don't remember that next week. I mean, people have talked about, um, you know, psychological blackouts. And there's bits and pieces that start to come back to me. But I don't remember a lot of what happened the week after that. Um, I did find out sometime later I came across a little grocery bag. And inside that bag was a receipt during that week. And there were two boxes of sleeping pills. So apparently I had plans to take my life I mean, what, what was next? I couldn't visualize what was next. I have often said that if I could have sat on his lap and I could have breathed the air that he was breathing, that maybe I might have been content. I mean, I couldn't do it without him. When I first came into Al-Anon, people would ask me how I felt about something. I, I couldn't tell you how I felt about something. I could tell you how, how Bob felt about it, but I couldn't tell you how I felt about it. Um, I'd lost myself and my life in this other person, and it wasn't like I planned it. And I had no idea that that's the way it was going. It just, it just happened. And so anyway, it was probably about a week after um, Bob came and told me that he was checking into treatment and that maybe I might want to think about something. I did have a girlfriend of mine. I, I do remember it was quite some time later. Well, I think she actually reminded me. The gal that brought me into the program... She had asked me at one time if I thought it was drinking, and I didn't think it was drinking. I didn't think that had anything to do with it. But I was um, helping her husband. This was kind of funny. Her husband was an AA. She was going to Al-Anon, and he had, um, you know how we always say they went off the wagon. Well, anyway, he went off the wagon, and I was helping him sell Coke. And I got to know her through that. And so I knew who to go to, at least, when um, I needed some help. And so I started going to Al-Anon. Now, when I walked into my first meeting, um, people were very friendly. But, you know, uh, number one, it was women in the meeting room. And I didn't get along very well with women. And I went with this attitude. I thought, you know, if you people had your shit together the way I have mine together, you wouldn't even need these meetings. And I figured, you know, they'd give me my little list of ten things, and then I would be on my way. And I'll tell you, you know, I've heard people say, don't sell yourself short. And I will tell you this today, don't sell yourself short. Because I, too, like what Mike had said today, I I would have never thought that X number of years later I'd be here speaking, you know, about my experiences, definitely about all the, you know, the stuff that we consider the trash in our lives, and you would, you know, laugh about it or that anybody would even gain anything from that. But I have gained so much from Al-Anon. I mean, I've grown up in Al-Anon, basically. Um, I don't remember very much about that first meeting, but I do remember that they had the 12 steps and the 12 traditions on the wall of Al-Anon. And I do remember them saying that those 12 steps, I remember specifically the 12 steps, I don't know about the traditions, but them specifically saying that the 12 steps were adapted from Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, you know, all I could think about was, um, okay, well, I can't wait until he gets to, you know, the ones with the amends because he has a lot of amends to make to me. 
and you know I thought my deal in it they said that we would work through those steps and so you know I kind of read through them and okay you know like I'm done <laughs> now I need my list of 10 things and I'll be on my way and you know I I did I'll t I'll, there's lots of things that I did when I was doing Al-Anon there's a couple things that I, I wouldn't suggest to other people um, I wouldn't suggest that you pray for serenity and patience um, I'll just tell you right now from my own experience that if you pray for that, uh, it, it'll be tested. And I, I finally realized that when I was after, you know, a little bit of time in Al-Anon, I'm looking out my, I lived in a trailer, and I'm looking out my trailer window, and my neighbor is digging up my flowers. And I looked up, you know, expecting this great ray of light to come down, and I rapped on the window and called her a few choice words, and I thought I flunked. You know, I flunked Al-Anon. They're going to kick me out. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, like the big gong in the sky doesn't go off. Um, they don't kick you out of Al-Anon. Um, they haven't kicked me out anyway. And um, I, you know, for a long time I thought I was different because I, I even told them one time in the meeting, I said, you people don't understand. I said, I'm not addicted to the alcoholic. I am obsessed with the alcoholic. And they said, well, no screaming, Pen. We all are. That's why we're here. And for me... When five minutes would go by and I didn't think about him, it was a miracle. When I could collect a couple of those together, it was a miracle. When I could finally tell somebody how I felt, and I wasn't thinking about how the alcoholic felt, it was a miracle. Um, I had a really tough time, well, you know, with the alcoholic being in treatment, Right away, you know, I went over there and was going to be the one that was going to, you know, be there for family week because, of course, I was the one that knew his, you know, knew his drinking background. And so being the good person that I was, I presented myself to his counselor. And um, his counselor asked me, he said, are you going to Al-Anon? And I said, yes, I am. He said, that's good. You just keep on going. And so I did because I thought that's what I should be doing. You see, I went to Al-Anon because I thought if I acted, I was, acted as if I was interested in something that the alcoholic was interested in, then he would keep me in his life. That was why I went to Al-Anon. That was why I continued to go to Al-Anon for a while. And then it was like I got hooked on Al-Anon. Um, I will tell you that if you, you know, there's three sides to that triangle, recovery, unity, and service. And if you're just going to the meetings... You know, if you're just showing up in time for the meetings and then you're going home, you're missing out. You are missing out on so much of this program because there is so much more than to just going to meetings. I wouldn't be here if that's all there was because when the drinking was gone, I thought, oh, what a boring life. Because, you know, Alkies, like I said, are exciting people. You, you, like, get to visit different places. You get to meet all kinds of people. You know, middle of the night, you drive to Annas. Hey, that was exciting to me. You know, you got to do all kinds of things. I mean, lying was, you know, that was pretty exciting. You know, that fit right into my category. You were, you were usually popular. Um, and so that was, you know, that was why I uh, stayed in Al-Anon after a while was because I got hooked right away. Um, it was shortly after I was in Al-Anon that there was a little roundup. And uh, my group was doing a workshop and they asked me if I would be willing to hand out this little recipe. I belonged, at that time my home group was the 5-H group. And there was a meeting for those 5-Hs. And so I handed out this little recipe at the door. And my gosh, they, you know, I, I was like a queen. And, and so I, that was great for me. I mean, I was, once again, I was the center of attention. And I loved it. 
And, I mean, that, that kind of passed after a while. I'll, I'll say that. But, um, I mean, there's little things that happen that, you know, kind of get your ego slapped in your face a couple of times. Um, when I was new, they talked about getting a sponsor, and I got a sponsor right away. The sponsor that I got had to do with the alcoholic. Um, I got a sponsor that she was, she was in Al-Anon, went to Al-Anon meetings, and she also worked in the treatment center that, that Bob was going to. And so that was why I got her as a sponsor. She was a great sponsor. She took me through the steps, which I absolutely needed because I had all of that stuff in my past that was playing over and over and over and over again in my head. And I could not get rid of it. And I worked through the steps, worked all of that history through the steps. And I mean, I felt some relief in that. Um, instant relief. And like I said, when I finally gave up those two things that were haunting me, that again was um, other relief. I did a lot of things in Al-Anon in spite of. Um, people would say, you know, we were in a meeting one time, actually I was in an open A meeting, and um, they were talking about this feeling, and you know, I could really relate to it, because when I came in Al-Anon, I was just pretty much mad, very mad. I would get mad, I didn't know how I got that way, but that was all I could really feel. And they were talking about this feeling, and I could, you know, I could relate to it. And at the very end, they said that it was um, resentment. I, like, okay, so now what do I do? And they said, well, Penn, you're going to need to pray for that person. I mean, I was not about to pray for this person. But, okay, I'm going to pray for this person, and I will prove to you that it does not work. And so, you know, I didn't know anything about prayers. I mean, of course, you know, we did the Lord's Prayer at the end, and I thought I joined a cult when we did that. You know, did the serenity prayer, and I think I probably heard that somewhere. But I went home, and honest to gosh, my first prayer was, God bless that bitch, because I can't. I mean, I didn't know how else to do it. And, you know, I, I, it was, her name was Jane, and, you know, I got to kiss Jane today because... Um, Jane really got me into my program. She, you know, I'd be at work and I'd just be intense and I'd be down in that bathroom reading that one day at a time. And so I really got to know the one day at a time book because of Jane. Um, I prayed for Jane for three days. You know, I went to the meeting the next day and they said, so, Pen, how's it going with praying? I said, it doesn't work. They said, what are you still praying for? And I said, are you kidding? And they said, well, you may have to pray for Jane for the rest of your life. <laughs> oh, God. So, okay, I'll show you one more. So I started praying for Jane, and you know, it seemed like Jane changed. <laughs> we got to be pretty good friends. But I did a lot of things like that in Al-Anon. I mean, people would make suggestions, and I'd say, no way will it work, and I'll prove it to you. And somehow it worked. I don't know how. I didn't, you know, I had a really tough time with um, turning my will and my life over to the care of uh, something that I could not touch and feel. I, I just could not get a grasp on that, you know, and I gave up on, on God or any kind of a higher power when Janine was killed. And so uh, there was a little thing in the forum magazine one time. That's our little forum, our little monthly magazine. It's much like the grapevine if you're in AA. Anyway, there was a little article in there where this gal had talked about let go and let God or turning her will over to the care of a higher power, um, some, somewhat like the postman. And so in order for her to be able to let something go, you know, she needed to let go of the letter. And she was entrusting it to someone whom she may never see. Well, I could relate to that. And so that's how I kind of visualized my higher power to begin with. Um, you know, I thought, i got to have miracles because I am not going to get it unless I have miracles. And, you know, i got to have a lightning bolt. And I tell you today that I'm surprised I didn't get fried a couple times. And I'll tell you a couple of those stories, and I call them God deals. 
One of them was um, shortly after we'd been in the program for a while, Bob and I went camping, and I thought, oh, good, I'd get him all to myself, you know, and not any of those AA people. And I don't know about any of you, but, you know, sometimes if you're new in Al-Anon, sometimes you think that the drinking was better, number one, because um, he or she was more predictable, you know, because you knew whether you think you didn't know that little time and space or not, you did. You knew that moment of time and what you could get, and you knew how things would kind of go. Even though they were, you know, it was like real irrational and real crazy, it was somewhat predictable. And, um, um, boy, there went that fleeting moment. Well, anyway. Um, Okay, that's what I get for thinking again. Uh, In any case, we went off camping, and I got them all to myself, and, um, oh, I know what I was going to say. I'll go back to it anyway. Um, If you're new in the program, you you think that you would rather have them drinking because they're more predictable, because now when they're going, when they're in AA, it seems like they're never home. And what I would do in those situations, I'd say, you know, he's always going to AA meetings, so I started going to more Al-Anon meetings. Um, you know, it seemed like he was doing this, that, and the other thing, you know, getting ahead of me in the steps. And so I would just work harder on my steps. And I was, it was like competition. And it was probably good for me because, you know, I was a competitive type person. And that's how I kind of started Alan on was competition. In any case, so we go camping and I got them all to myself and we're, you know, got to look for the right camping spot. I don't know how many camping places we went to and we pulled into this one. And here's somebody from the program. It's like, God, don't they ever go away? They're everywhere. <laughs> so we go over and we set up camp. And, you know, Bob puts on the coffee. And pretty soon there's a little knock at the door. And, and Bob opens the door. And this guy comes in. And we're sitting down to have coffee. And he said that the moment that we pulled in, he was planning to shoot himself. He had the gun, was going to kill himself. Well, it wasn't until a long time later that it hit me that that was a God deal. I mean, It's those little moments in time that you have that window of opportunity. And I also look at those windows of opportunity that you, I mean, you know them. Everybody knows them. When you get like this little tap on the shoulder, you start thinking about someone. Either that or you see someone and you think, God, I should go talk to them. Or, man, I I should be calling that person. Or, you know, I ought to drop them a line. Well, do it. Because you're given that window of opportunity, I feel, for a reason. There have been lots of times where I was given that window of opportunity and I am so grateful that I paid attention to that little voice or that little tap on my shoulder because the next day that person wasn't there anymore. Another example was um, I went to, there's a Thursday night meeting in Billings that I really like going to. There's some old timers that go there. I went to a meeting Thursday night and there was a gal there that it seemed like people hadn't seen for a while. I don't know if I, well, I don't ever remember seeing her before, but it sounded like she had some time in the program. And everybody was really concerned about her. She was getting ready to go into the hospital. And so um, we had the meeting, and man, she said some great stuff about, you know, she was really scared to do this deal. But she said, you know, I couldn't even tell you what exactly she said, but it meant something to me at the time, and, and it's still there with me. She said some great things about let go and let God and having trust and, you know, just one day at a time and all those kinds of things. And I went up to her afterwards and I said, you know, don't be afraid. And I gave her a big hug and I am so glad that I did that because she died on the operating table. It's that little window of opportunity that we're given. Um, there's, just a moment. Oops, 
I always come up here with my little bag of literature. I feel like I'm naked when I don't have my literature. I was kind of raised on um, literature in this program. There was one point when I was in Al-Anon, and I, I had quite some time in the program, and I was just feeling like, I mean, I'd worked through the steps. I was sponsoring people, um, going, pro- well, at that time, actually, for two years, I went to a meeting every single day. They didn't have Al-Anon meetings on the weekends. I went to open AA meetings. It's not like I would recommend that for anyone or tell anyone that they have to do that. I mean, there's no have-tos in this program at all. It worked for me. It was something that was very good for me because it helped me to get my feet planted firmly in Al-Anon. I was fortunate enough that I had an 8-to-5 job. We don't have kids. Um, I was able to do that and attend meetings. And, it, that, you know, that was what I needed is all I can say. Anyway, after some time in Al-Anon, I mean, it was like I was feeling stuck. Like I didn't know, you know, where I was going or what was going on. It seemed like there should be more. And although I was involved in service, it just felt like I needed more to it. And there's a piece in our service manual. This is our um, Al-Anon service manual, by the way. And it's in the uh, World Service Handbook, which is so ironic because Pam and I, um, I'm the uh, delegate for uh, my area for Montana. And like Pam said, we serve together. Um, She's the Al-Anon delegate for Wyoming. And our panel that we're on is the, the handbook. And there's a piece in this handbook. It talks about taking an active part in Al-Anon's growth. I get to take an active part in the growth of Al-Anon. I mean, that just hit me one day. It was like, this is my deal. I get to do this deal. And so I started to think about things differently. Rather than thinking about my job as being a job, um, if if I get up in the morning and I say a little prayer to my higher power and I ask, you know, for such a long time I searched for my purpose in life and my purpose in life is right in those steps. It's right there, 12th step. So I ask every morning, you know, to please help me extend the hand to, to whoever needs it. You know, and the, the difference in the 12 steps is on the 12th step for us, it says carry the message to others. I mean, we'd like to carry the message to the alcoholic, but they, you know, they kind of frown on that. <laughs> anyway, so if I ask for help in carrying the message to others, every single day when I do that, I have a great day. And it seems like every single day I'm doing this deal in everything I do. I mean, it's not like for a long time I thought when I go to Al-Anon, I do my Al-Anon stuff. And then the rest of it was like some other part. And when you put it all together, it does really go with every part of your life. I mean, everything that I do in life centers around what I have learned in this program. You know, what I know up here, talking from the podium, what I'm telling you is everything that I've learned. It's like I don't have any magic answer. Um, It's just what people have talked about in the meetings. Um, I've heard some great things that people have talked about in the meetings. And it's like I take a piece of this and I take a piece of this and I take a piece of this and I put it in this little package that that works for me, and that's, you know, the story that I tell. And what really works for me is when I work on all three sides of that triangle, the recovery, the unity, and the service. And if one side, if I'm, like, really, you know, going for the recovery and I'm not doing the unity and service part, well, you know, guess what happens? When you have three sides of a triangle and one of them gets real long, crash. And I've had to experience that personally several times. I have to learn that balance. 
Um, I, I talked about yesterday that I hope I don't have to be a statistic. I mean, I continue to go to meetings on a regular basis. Uh, when we were in Virginia Beach here not too long ago, I, I'm not a morning person. I did not do the morning meetings. I didn't make the night meeting, so I didn't make a meeting. And by the end of the week, I was once again thinking that I would just be this great-looking widow. And so I knew right away that I was needing a meeting. And it's always wonderful to get back to my meetings. Um, I don't want to be a statistic for somebody that says, you know, I'm just going to slack off for a little while and then not show up. Because I'll be in jail. Because I'll kill him. <laughs> if, if I can't have him, nobody's getting him. I, I honestly believe today that Al-Anon saved my life. Because if I hadn't found Al-Anon, if I hadn't found all of you people, I would be either dead... I'd be in an insane asylum or else I'd be in jail. And more than likely, I'd be sitting in jail because, like I said, if I couldn't have him, nobody else was getting him. Um, I, you know, I, like I said, I cannot, I cannot even give back what I have gained from this program. I mean, I have a brand new family, people that know me better than I even know myself. Um, you, know, you know, you could think that I'm a terrible speaker, and when I get down from this podium, you know, you people are, I, well, I, usually, you know, people clap. <laughs> I usually get a couple hugs afterwards, you know, and if, if I stood up here and I bawled the whole time, well, you probably wouldn't like that. I'd probably pull it together a little bit, but you'd tell me that it was okay. I mean, there's a lot of times, I, you know, I can't tell you enough that if you don't have a home group, get a home group. People would encourage me to do that, and they said that the home group, you know, there'll be times where you'll walk in and you'll be sitting in, you know, like in the muck, and you won't know it, but your home group will know it. I didn't want anybody to know that I was sitting in the muck. I didn't want you to know me at all. When I walked into, um, when I walked into Al-Anon, I had this huge brick wall around me, and it took a long time to take those bricks down. I was a tough girl. You were never going to see me cry. I would, um, you know, they told me, they said, you know, spend an hour a day with yourself, doing something with yourself. And, you know, I could think about all these other things that I could do for other people, but for me to spend an hour a day with myself doing something for myself, it was like, it was absurd. I, I couldn't even picture it. So for a long time, my hour a day, I spent in a bathtub taking a bubble bath, bawling my eyes out. Because nobody else was going to see that. I didn't want you to see me hurting. Because I could do this deal by myself. I didn't need your help. And I didn't know how much I did need your help. There's a gal that, and I know lots of people have said this too, you know, where else can I go and say I love an alcoholic? And people won't laugh at me. They won't say divorce him. You know, we support you either way, whatever you want to do. You know, we've got people that come to Al-Anon, they go to meetings, and they're very active in the program, and they're still living with active alcoholism. Where else can you do that? I mean, and that's what I love, this program. I, you know, I absolutely love newcomers because it always brings me back to that time when, uh, what it was like when um, the alcoholic told me that he didn't want to see me anymore. And it's just like that, that I can get right back there. You know, where it's like I could not get him out of my head. I absolutely had to have him for life and existence. And I don't have to do that anymore. You know, it's like a relief for me. You know, when you get that big knot in the pit of your stomach and it's like you don't think that you can go on. I mean, I've had that and I know exactly what that's like for newcomers. Um, if, if you're new to Al-Anon or if you've never been, it, um, they told me, they said, try six meetings. So that's what I did. 
And I was hooked after those six meetings because I could talk to all of you and you could relate to what I was saying. You didn't laugh at me while you laughed with me. You know, but you didn't laugh at me. You didn't tell me I had to do this, that, or the other thing. Um, I was never told I had to do anything. Well, no. The very last meeting, I mean, at the end of the meeting, you know, they shake your hands and they say, keep coming back. Let me tell you what, I never had anybody that told me to keep coming back. I got kicked out of bars. You know, I wasn't the drinker. I was, yesterday when Carrie talked, I was a biter. I, um, I got 86 from a bar for biting a woman. I wasn't drinking, but she, um, she threw, uh, I don't know what it was, if it was a beer or what it was. I was it was just she and I in the bar, and um, she was a big woman. Um, and I was on one end of the bar, and she was on the other end. Who knows why she did this, but she threw a drink at me, and, you know, that, oh, that, oh you don't do that. Anyway, so I was, you know, tough, and I went over there, and I was going to just kick her hiney, and... And um, she got a hold of my head. She had me down in her crotch. And the only thing I could get a hold of was her arm. So I bit this huge chunk out of her arm. And and I ended up getting kicked out of the bar. Um, I got kicked out of another bar one time for starting a fight. I loved, you know, I always loved kind of just, you know, picking at the scab. Because that was another exciting thing. Because then you get the fight going. And then all these, you know, I always hung out with those huge guys. And it was always just, it was, you know, I was in my element. And Al-Anon gives me that element. I mean, it still gives me that piece of excitement. We've always got something going on. We're always doing something fun and exciting. And you know what? It seems like whenever you're giving, you know, I was, I, you know, it's not like I plan to come up here, and it's not like my favorite thing to do to come up here and share with you, but it's something that I need to do. I, you know, I was told not to say no to an Al-Anon request, and I've tried to keep that for myself. I try not to say no. And it doesn't matter how much I give, I keep getting back. You know, I can't give more than what I get. When you share with someone else, there's something else that you get in return, and it's like, it, it's, it's there always, and so you keep sharing that, and I'll tell you what, you, you won't keep it unless you give it away. And um, I've learned that in Al-Anon. Um, after a year of sobriety, uh, Bob and I got married, and, you know, the first three years of marriage was living hell. It was not pretty at all. And, well, you know, you take two totally separate people and you put them in the same house and it gets pretty hairy sometimes. And so it was not pretty. And um, after a while, you know, when I quit working his program and started really focusing on myself, I was able to, uh, we, you know, we've had a great marriage. And I feel like today I can stand up here and I can honestly tell you that I married my best friend. Um, we've, had a, we've had some tough times in the marriage, but, you know, I, I really, well, let's see, maybe he'll come up here and tell you something different. Um, I can't remember the last time that we have fought. Um, we have disagreements, but you know what? Today, I actually want to hear what he has to say. I actually go to you, and I ask for your opinion. I want to hear your opinion, especially if it's different from mine. Because it gives me another point of view. Before, it was only my opinion was the right one. I didn't want to hear yours at all. Um, I, you know, like I said, I absolutely love this program. I, I love everything about it. Um, I, I absolutely love doing the service work. There are pieces of it that um, I don't feel are my little niche, but that's why we all are different. Um, some people are really, really good at like PI work, and some people are really, really good at 
at making coffee and some people are really really good at greeting newcomers and everybody has their little niche and that's why you know it's called a we deal if if I can impress anything upon anyone it's something that was always has always meant something to me and I thought about it after that day when um, we drove into that campground and that guy uh, was going to shoot himself the thing that came to my mind is that you know you never have to do this deal alone again never in the steps in the traditions in the concepts it says we us they you know it's always talking about a collective or a group of people you know if I have a problem or there's something going on in my life or you know I need help with something here it is you know and for a long time I was sitting at home trying to do this deal on my own. Um, I would, you know, do things like willing the phone to ring and, you know, all those crazy things that we do. And, you know, I don't have to go through that craziness anymore. And I have Al-Anon to thank for that. Um, I just want to, I know Brenda was instrumental in getting us here. And so I want to say thank you to her. But I want to say thank you to the, um, anyone else that, you know, that, that got us here, that got me here. Um, I absolutely love coming to Wyoming. Uh, my area, we consider Wyoming our sister state. And so I love coming over here and um, have loved spending the weekend with you and am looking forward to more. Thank you very much.